Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin and Global Finance podcast with me, Jason Dean. Here we talk about all things Bitcoin and all things financial and try and make some sense of them. If you'd like to get in touch with me or comment on today's podcast, then I'll give you some contact details at the end of this episode. Or if you're listening on YouTube, just leave a comment below. It's great to have you here with me today as we dive into our chosen subject for this podcast. And the question I'm going to be asking is, is now the right time to invest back in the stock market? After all, there's been some lower prices recently, so that's got to mean lots more opportunities, right? Well, maybe. The fact is, the reality of day-to-day life for most of us right now is the four walls we found ourselves inside when the world stopped. That's where we are, and that's where we're staying for the moment. And for many of us, actually, the ability to earn anything has all but disappeared. And we actually dream now of the time where we can go back outside and smell that sweet, fresh air. But for others, even though they've got the same restrictions as the rest of us, it's just another day. Um, If we go back to that famous quote by Gordon Gecko from Wall Street, money never sleeps. And it's absolutely true. The markets are still open globally. In fact, have been open every day, uh, bar a few safety cutouts here and there. Uh, The trade's still complete. The money still changes hands back and forth, as it has done for centuries in one form or another. Something reassuring about this, because if recent events have made you worried for the end of the world, well, just be assured that as long as human beings are still looking to make money on a deal somewhere, you're probably going to be okay. But if you are a fund manager or investor or trader and you want to keep the wheels of capitalism moving, where do you look to put your money in the midst of a crisis, especially after the big sell-off? And that big sell-off I refer to uh, really began in mid-February 2020 when the the whole coronavirus thing really started to kick off. It later accelerated, of course, in March. And in that time, no asset class was safe. Literally everything was converted back into familiar and, quote, unquote, safe fiat currency. Uh, You know, for any reason, you'll take anything in these situations that's in the green. um, You'll take anything to make those margin calls. Even the classic go-to safe haven for all of human history, gold, took a hit as well. I should be clear, it did increase uh, a little bit initially, which was probably no real surprise, but then also became a victim of the sell-off and and dropped down. Bonds, oil, silver, all others followed suit. Um, But don't forget oil was a bit of a special case um, since the collapse in the global demand also coincided with a Saudi-Russian TIF over production levels, which as of today's date, uh, 7th of April, is still going on. Of course, Bitcoiners like myself were not surprised to see the flagship currency also take a hit, especially as the price gains over the last few months have made that a pretty likely candidate for that to happen. And of course, that reignited arguments as to whether Bitcoin can act as a proper store of value. And that discussion is still going on and probably will do for four years to come. So indices recorded daily drops not seen since 1987 or even 1929 in some cases. And this was partly due to the obligatory panic selling, which sort of has to take place by law when things go wrong. But also because investors had presumably understood that without any income, most companies' fundamentals really don't hold up very well. At the end of the day, it wasn't very pretty, um, but many would argue perhaps that was as it should be. After all, what else is going to happen when every person, company and market on the planet 
are affected by something completely out of the influence of any of them. But even before this rotation into cash completed, governments of developed countries all around the world had started to realise that the only way to protect their economies in the medium term was to pump money into them and pump lots and lots of money into it. And don't forget, we've done this before. Really, we saw this in in any sort of large scale back in 2008 crisis. But this time it's big. It's really big. And the bottom line is, so we're told really, is that it's cheaper to pause the economy by printing money now and injecting it now rather than letting it crash and try and rebuilding it later on by employing tighter monetary policy. Because this kind of makes sense because it's no good having a stronger currency if no one has any of it to spend on on any goods and services. I'll be honest, I haven't seen the maths on either of these scenarios. I can only imagine the complexity in trying to work these out, but I do accept the logic and the argument behind it does seem sound. So for right now, each country is going to use one of the design features of fiat currency, basically just to create more of it for their citizens. Uh, in theory, this allows every person to cover their bills while they sit at home and wait for it all to blow over. This is through sort of furloughs or even direct helicopter money. Of course, in practical terms, it's not that easy to deliver as each government has, has found so far when grappling with what's fair, how to reach self-employed people, which groups should get support, which ones should be completely exempt, if any, and so on and so forth. And remember, these guys have had to put this together in an incredibly short time. In contrast, if you try to do this project outside of um, an event like this, let's just say it was a proposal put into something like the G8 and say, oh, we should think about this and prepare for this. It would take years, if not decades, to agree a plan like this. So most of these governments come up with a working solution in, in days or even hours, and it's not going to be perfect. And whatever your views are on it, there is one fact that is absolutely inescapable. Every country concerned has created huge amounts of extra cash out of thin air. And while this is not really done with physical printing presses, um, which is a shame really, because I love to think of the presses just running 24-7 producing all this cash, the net effect of actually doing this is, is known. And we know that that effect is inflation. Your pound, your dollar, your euro, whatever you're used to, is about to drop in terms of real purchasing value. Now, this is not going to happen immediately, particularly at the moment, as none of us are still spending anything, still sitting in our rooms uh, and our houses uh, under lockdown in, in most cases. But eventually, this will happen. So if you're managing a fund with a large cash percentage after liquidating everything, you're now guaranteed to lose out if you hold it for any long period of time. So what do you do? Now, I, I do acknowledge I'm simplifying a little bit and I'm playing with the timescales a little bit really to demonstrate the point. But it's one of the arguments perhaps for taking uh, a, a punt back on the markets. And the markets are interesting because almost as soon as they crashed, they began to recover again. So after recording record losses where particularly the Dow dropped to about, uh, I think it's about 18,000 at one stage, um, some indices started recording uh, gains immediately afterwards. Um, as of today, as I say, it's the 7th of April um, 2020, uh, the Dow is up some 27% from that low. And in fact, it's still climbing. Now, crashes of this size do happen. And of course, there's normally a reason that uh, starts it all off. 
And as soon as the indices get low enough, well, people pile back in and start buying again because they consider everything to be oversold. And rightly or wrongly, that's just fairly typical behavior. But in this particular occasion, this is not a normal time. This is not a normal crash. Um, actually, I'm not sure what normal times or normal crashes are, but there's certainly some different factors to take into account. If you think about it, there's not a single aspect of our day-to-day -day lives that would be recognizable to us if we were looking from our recent past, and that applies pretty much anywhere in the world. And this fact, to me, seems to have been overlooked at least to some extent. You see, while stocks are basically big, faceless corporations, they are more than just a ticker acronym on a screen. They are made up of people working with established parameters and systems that they're used to and do every day. And those employees from the lowest level to the top make these corporations run and make the wheels of productions turn. And when you remove them uh, to one extent or another, those wheels will stop turning. So there are some companies that have already adapted to allow remote working in a way that would not have been possible even five years ago, but even they are not immune. All companies still need customers. And those customers, in most cases, are not being customers right now. If you are in lockdown, you think about how much you're spending now compared to how much you were spending. And you're probably also finding that you're spending that money in a different way. So no one's flying anywhere. No one's going on holiday. No one's buying new cars or new clothes or a thousand other things that we usually do on a day-to-day -day basis. In terms of services, no one is designing new packaging or consumer testing new products or making blue luxury widgets for any specific market sectors. You can log in and chat with your colleagues as much as you like, even if you're in those industries. But with no one to serve, it's going to be a real short conversation. Now, of course, there are exceptions to this, because if you're in streaming services or network maintenance or any form of logistics, pretty much anything to do with healthcare or food production, um, you might be okay. You might even be flourishing as a business, but it's not the case for most. So if we take a cold, hard, analytical look at what's going on, a rising stock market in the current climate can only really mean one thing. People are buying stocks when the fundamentals haven't improved at all. In fact, I'd go further than that. Not only have the fundamentals not improved since the crisis began, but they've also gotten worse. It's now quite likely that people are buying stocks in companies without customers, but with empty buildings containing nothing but mothballed equipment. So why would you dump an equity two weeks ago and then buy it back again now when you know, categorically, that the world is in a far worse place than it was when you sold it? Well, I suspect there are probably three possible reasons for this. First, there's a lack of alternatives. Gold is your classic safe haven, but it appears for whatever reason not to be in favour right now, or at least to the levels we'd expect to see. And silver, of course, wiped out an entire decade's gains in just one week, seriously damaging its reputation as a store of value. Of course, you could leave it in cash because that appears to be safer, um, but it does provide guaranteed negative returns over time, as we saw earlier. Oil, as we touched on, is a messy quagmire of uncertainty for both supply and demand reasons at the moment, and other commodities have moved into unpredictable territories as well. Bonds have appalling returns and interest rates, well, they're going to be nothing for now and certainly for some time yet. 
So when you put it like that, equities suddenly don't seem so bad. So secondly, if we assume this actually is the case, then there must be some stocks that actually yield both a short-term gain and provide a long-term solid position if you get it right, especially those in the industry sectors mentioned previously. Some fund managers will be thinking about how they can turn the crash to their advantage, and frankly so they should, because at the end of the day, that's their job. Finally, Stocks whose prices have been trading at much higher levels now seem very cheap by comparison. After all, who wouldn't want to buy top draw stocks at knockdown prices? It makes sense. And I really get this thinking. I really do. Those of you who may have read some of my articles in the past know that I've personally carried out some very risky trades over the last 25 years through various market cycles. So I know firsthand just how hard it is to resist those opportunities when they come along. The fact is that the few that pay off more than pay for the ones that don't. Now, admittedly, I did most of these risky trades as a younger man with a much higher propensity for risk. I still do like to take a few risks, but not quite to the same extent that I used to. So I don't do it quite as much these days. But even though I'm not adverse to taking a punt on something that's got a bit of an outside chance of success, I just can't accept that this is a good time to buy any traditional assets in any traditional markets, except possibly gold if you're an institution or Bitcoin if you're an individual. I put it that way round, incidentally, because it's as hard for an institution to buy Bitcoin for really regulatory reasons as it is for the man in the street to buy gold for purely practical reasons. If you've never tried it, in terms of buying gold, that is, it's really not that straightforward. Now, this is obviously a big, broad, sweeping conclusion I've come to here. And I've got there really just because of two words, the unknown. Now, I would hope and expect that those investments that have been made so far back into the market have been made with some kind of calculated assumption about how much impact coronavirus will have on the global economy and, of course, the individual stock. But I can't help but feel they're all way too optimistic because otherwise we'd still be heading downwards. At the end of the day, the impact here is not going to be just a little blip on the economic landscape. It will not be a footnote like the 2008 crisis has become in comparison. And I do remain steadfast in my view that sooner or later, this will filter through to almost every company in every country on a scale we don't yet fully understand. But we will recover. I'm in no doubt about that either. The human race, well, we're incredibly resilient and we're resourceful. We'll come back in a new form with new norms and the usual winners and losers. But frankly, even I, as someone who spends a lot of time looking at macroeconomic data and lots of other data, wouldn't really know where to start right now in terms of trying to make sense of it. Now, that may surprise you, but by all means, go and try and have a look at it yourself and see what conclusions you can come to. But the task is so vast and there's so many unquantifiable variables, your final answer is probably going to be multiples out, same as mine. And of course, I'd be interested to see how you interpreted the data, but I really wouldn't trust your conclusion any more than the ones I came to. I really think the whole situation could be summed up by just asking one question and thinking about the answer. And that question is this. Do you really think it's likely that the markets have reached a bottom barely past the opening stages of this pandemic? Well, I think my position on this is pretty clear. I don't think so either. 
Thanks for listening today. If you've got any comments or questions on this podcast, please message me on Twitter at Jason A. Dean. Or if you'd like to know more on the subject of Bitcoin and finance in general, then join me on medium.com forward slash at Jason A. Dean. Don't forget that E on the end when you're typing that in or you will not find me. Otherwise, I'll see you next time on the Bitcoin and Global Finance Podcast.